Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. Our guest for this podcast is Dr. Pat Crawford, who's the director of the Robert and Veronica Atkins Center for Weight and Health, an adjunct professor in the School of Public Health and the Department of Nutritional Sciences and Toxicology at the University of California, Berkeley, one of the nation's leading experts on obesity and food policy. Dr. Crawford has done evaluations of, of many of the, the most important policy proposals that have been made to deal with obesity and its prevention. So, Pat, welcome. Thank you, Kelly. So I'd like to have a broad talk about public policy. There, it's out there everywhere now. There was a time when the country didn't even think about the prevention of obesity. There was a time when we weren't thinking about public policy, but boy, has that changed. And now there's discussion about menu labeling in restaurants and taxes on sugared beverages and nutrition in schools, and that just begins a long list. So it's a very exciting time, and you've been at the forefront in California uh, in ways that have really served as a model for the rest of the country in helping establish public policy. So we're, I'd like to ask you about specific examples like trans fats and taxes on sugared beverages. But before we do that, I'd like to ask a broader question about how, how, how it's come to be that California has been so progressive with this. I mean, there's the progressive nature of the state itself. But there are certain conditions that seem to exist in California that make these public policy advances possible. And it goes beyond the fact that you're a world-class research center housed in a very credible university. But there are other players involved in this. And my sense is that in California, the players work especially well together. Can you paint us a picture, if you would, about who some of these other players are and how they've been important? Yes. Well, <clears throat> we at the Center for Weight and Health at Berkeley um, have uh, founded a center um, the center is about 10 years old, uh, where we were very interested in um, identifying ways that we could work with the community to find out what the community needs are, and then to um, provide the information that they needed. And at that point, we didn't know exactly what kind of policy arena we would be entering into, but we knew that the translation of information from the university to the community was terribly important, and that translation often was missing as we would publish in, in journals, and, and sometimes the information would go um, uh, into the, the places where it could actually be implemented and used. So that was our mission, and uh, as the center began to um, work in different areas of improving nutrition and physical activity opportunities for children, we found a ready and willing group of other um, uh, advocates in the state who, who were working towards that same goal. And we found that they could, they understood the, what was really needed what questions needed to be answered, what the barriers were for, um, for making changes that were very positive, that we would see as positive. And we began to work more closely with them to understand how we could better research the topics and provide useful information. So um, as California public health advocates, as well as the California food um, policy, um, groups. Um, both groups were very important in um, helping understand what some of the problems were. 
and we began to work with them. Also, the California Endowment, a large funder in the state of California, had a, a very um, good understanding of the importance of not working at the individual level, but trying to work at the policy level and the environmental level so that the funds from their foundation could be used to help the most people. So they were willing to fund the relationship to between researchers and evaluators and and policy folks and advocacy folks so that they really helped to bridge the communities that were in California so that we worked more closely together and could really make a bigger change. Kaiser Permanente was another another key player in understanding how these groups could work together to create a healthier environment for for our children in food and, and activity. And then finally, the Strategic Alliance, which was funded in 2004, was a combination of, of many um, health and advocacy groups who came together to um, work on strategies to improve the health of, of the children in California. So I think all of these things have made us, um, have allowed us to make some changes that have improved the health and certainly having a legislature and a governor who would be willing to make some of these changes and be bold. I think uh, Governor Schwarzenegger has said we need bold leaders and bold changes because we all know what the, the goal here is, is to make it easier for children to choose the healthy uh, food and the healthy activity. And, and it's up to the adults to, to create these opportunities for our children. So a certain number of people listening to this podcast will be people who are involved in science. And people in science, scientific people in universities aren't accustomed usually to reaching out to community organizations like that. So it's been very helpful for you to paint a picture of what's happened in California because it does show that there's this world of people out there who are ready to take the scientific information and make use of it in creating legislative or regulatory changes if scientists only know where to go look for them. So you've been mm -hmm. a great model for that. I'd like to, to do a couple of case studies, if you will, because I know you've been deeply involved in these issues. And there are a lot of interesting lessons to be learned from them. One is trans fat. And can you tell us about the experience in California about trans fat and how the labeling came in and the industry responded and, the, and how, that, how that took shape? Sure. Well, um, a few years ago, um, the FDA uh, decided to um, put trans fat on the back of the package labels um, that we see on all of our packaged foods so that in addition to the standard macronutrients and micronutrients that are on the back package of our foods, um, they included trans fat. There was good scientific evidence that trans fats are a type of fat that is more dangerous to our health than even saturated fats. And if we um, are interested in improving our health, we should um, put that, uh, give, give the consumer that information. Now, interestingly, industry was ready when that was mandated to, they knew that was coming down the pike, that they would be required to put that on their their food labels, their packages. And interestingly, they changed the composition of their foods. They removed the trans fats um, in large part, not all companies did, but in large part, uh, m 
way more foods became trans fat free during that um, simple, uh, during that short time period when labeling uh, became effective. So, um, and, and now there, most of our products have little, if any, trans fats uh, that we buy. And certainly the ones that do have it, it's labeled and we can see it, how much. Um, but what was interesting about that case study is that there was no public um, education campaign about the dangers of trans fats. So in fact, the public learned more about trans fats when they saw on the front of the package, um, often industry would promote its new trans fat free product by saying, you know, with a banner across the front, no trans fats in this project. And um, consumers began to ask, well, what are trans fats and how bad are they and what are they? And so without doing a public education campaign, I consider this one of the most effective ways to change the, improve the health of the American food supply with that simple stroke of a pen by one of our federal agencies to, uh, to label it. So it was a very effective public health campaign to reduce the trans fat in our food supply and um, uh, to reduce the amount that people consume. So the health is, uh, has dramatically increased and we have less heart disease as a result. So in California, we decided to take that a step farther and introduced, there was an introduction of legislation to remove it from other foods. This was packaged foods that were covered with the labeling, but also um, commercial foods in restaurants and, um, and in school venues. And so um, there was quite a bit of discussion about that, that that would be very expensive to do, that the products would, industry was concerned and there were talk shows on, on the topic on how much, you know, it would cost, you know, our meals would be more expensive if we had to, you know, remove trans fats from the various foods that were offered. But the information from the labeling of trans fats in our uh, food products showed that the increased cost was, was quite minimal. So it was a very natural thing for lawmakers in California to um, take on, which was if this is good for our processed and our packaged foods, wouldn't we want this kind of um, ruling to, to help with the other foods? People eat out a tremendous amount more. It's really gone up the amount people eat out. So it, in the end, it was, um, um, you know, successfully done. And I think in other states and communities as well, there's been quite a movement. And now um, the American diet has much lower amount of trans fat. And everybody serves to benefit when we can have a policy like that that is um, uh, possible to be implemented by the industry. They did put quite a bit of testing into making their products taste the same and um, have the same uh, types of shelf life. So it, it was just a, a natural thing to, to get out of our food supply. When we put it into our food supply 30 or 40 years ago, we had no idea that there were health benefits. In fact, dietitians were out 
we, we were promoting margarine as the optimal fat, and margarine was very high in trans fats, but we certainly didn't know then. But when we get the literature and the science, then it's time to really change the policy to, to get in line with the science. Well, it's a very interesting case study, and I think you made the key, a key point here that trans fats are not an easy concept to explain or get across to the public, and you could have a huge amount of money spent on trying to educate your way to the outcome that was produced by a simple change in legislation. Mm-hmm. And so it just shows the power of public policy. It now, really does. Another public policy arena that where California is one of the states out front is the idea of putting a tax on sugar-sweetened beverages. Um, can you tell us where things stand with that now in California? Well, as we speak, um, both the Senate and the Assembly have a bill now uh, with a you know proposal for a soda tax, and this money would be used to promote health. So that's one of the things that um, is appealing about it, that it is a tax, but the money is sorely needed for health-related obesity prevention of children. So I think that um, many are willing to really consider a soda, especially with the science. We've done quite a bit of work at the Center for Weight and Health on um, the relationship between soda consumption and obesity development. And this is the one um, source of calories that is the most linked to um, obesity development. And so it is a natural item to, in some way, begin to um, um, uh, add, add some cost to it to encourage people and children to make um, alternative beverage selections that would really promote their health. And further, corn is subsidized in the country, and um, at the federal level through the farm bill, the uh, production, And so this is an opportunity where um, it is a lower cost with the high fructose corn syrup in these beverages that has some subsidy. So we're not actually paying the real cost of that um, production in any event. And now added to that lower cost of these beverages, if we tax the, the sugar added, then the cost will go up and more closely approximate perhaps what the real cost might be. But I think um, in answer to your question about how close are we getting to it, to actually having a soda tax in California, I'd say we're getting closer and closer. And a survey was done just in the last two weeks of consumers to find out how ready they are and willing they are to have a tax on a food product um, or a beverage product like this. And it ended up being ended up showing that between 50 and 60 percent of the population of California from this survey uh, said that they were willing to have the price to pay more for their sodas um, and they could see the value in using the economic stick to actually try to shift consumption to healthier beverages. So it, it I think the, the there's been so much information out on the uh, health risks, and certainly there's no benefits from drinking it, um, that people are, are really willing to consider it now. So I think it will be, you know, only time will tell, but I, if I had to put my money on it, I'd say that we're going to have a soda tax, so we'll find out. Good. Well, thank you for that update. 
you know, because California is really leading in these public policy arenas, it's nice to hear experience of somebody who's been central to all this in California, and you certainly have. And you're just a terrific model of how the rigorous science can be a real player in this if it's used in the right way and gets translated out there to the mm-hmm. people who are in the position of making policy decisions. So thanks so much for sharing that with us. You're welcome, and so, thank you. So our guest today was Dr. Pat Crawford. Patricia Crawford, director of the Robert and Veronica Atkins Center for Weight and Health and adjunct professor in the School of Public Health at the University of California, Berkeley, and one of the leading experts on food and nutrition policy. Please visit our website, www.yalerudcenter.org, and you'll find a variety of resources, including a free email newsletter that gets dispatched monthly and a list, of course, of other podcasts that we've recorded with excellent visitors to the Rudd Center. Thank you.